Hiya, Arthur. Mom. So, do you know who's going to be on the podcast today? No. No. Uh, her name's Rakka, and she is like an expert on this thing that represents an entire country. It's this jumper here, and it's amazing. And she's an expert on knitting and on jumpers, and she loves Eurovision. And so I'm going to ask you some Eurovision questions uh, to, to start us off. Okay, you ready? Okay, look, I am going to give you three songs, and for every song, I'm going to ask you three questions. Okay, the questions are, is this a Eurovision song? Is it about knitting? And is it from Iceland? Okay, mm -hmm. and if every, for every song you get right, you get one of these lovely Belgian chocolates wrapped in gold. Okay, three songs, are you ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, first song... Fat Les Vindaloo. All right, you've got your headphones on. And I'm going to give you 10 seconds. Go. You can pause it now. Okay. Okay, Arthur, you ready for the questions? Uh-huh. Question one, is this a Eurovision song, yes or no? Yes. Okay, question number two, is it about knitting? No. Wrong, Arthur. Yes. Knit one, purl one. Drop one, curl one. Last one, is it from Iceland? No. No, this song is not from Iceland. Yeah, and it's also not a Eurovision song, Arthur. Okay, so next one. Next chance for chocolate. Are you ready? So this song is called Dance by the Busker. Ooh, you might do well for this one, Arthur. Ready? Listen. Okay, Arthur, here's the questions. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Dance, the busker. Is it a Eurovision song? Yes. Yes, okay. Is it about knitting? Is there any knitting in this song? No. Wrong, Arthur. They've got sweaters. They're singing about their sweaters. Uh, and is it from Iceland? Yes. No, Arthur, no. No, Malta. Okay, you ready for the next one? Mm-hmm. Daddy Freuer, think about things. I definitely know this is from Iceland. You definitely know this is from Iceland? Yeah. Can I pause it? Yes. Okay. Okay, you ready for the questions? Uh, yeah. You're really ready? Yes. Okay. For the last chocolate, Arthur, is this a Eurovision song? Yes. Okay. Is it about knitting? No. Correct. Is it from Iceland? Yes. There you go, Arthur. One chocolate. Welcome to Eurovision Song Context. This is a podcast that tries to get to the bottom of what makes a Eurovision submission successful. It's a tour of culture, identity, and the ins and outs of ESC. In every episode, I chat with a special guest and we eventually talk about two or three old submissions we had strong feelings about. I'm Bradley, and today I'm joined by Raga Eriksdottir. She's an expert on and designer of an object that typifies Iceland the world over, the Lopapesa jumper. We'll talk about knitting, sheep, meditative states, the Icelandic costumes and fire saga, whether the busker should feel better in their sweaters, bangers, 
and Iceland in Eurovision. We'll also chat about some iconic submissions from 2012, 2016 and 2020, including Lorene, Jamala and Daddy Froyer. I always encourage you to go to the show page at eurovisionsongcontext.fireside.fm and watch the submissions and look at the jumpers before we talk about them. Can you please pronounce your name for me so I know? My nickname is yeah. Rakka. That's what people know me by. Rakka. But my whole name is Ragnheiður Haralds Eriksdóttir Bjarman. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go with Rakka. Does that sound right? Rakka is good. <laughs> Excellent. Welcome, Rakka. Thank you. My first question is, I, so I've been dying to do um, an episode with an Icelandic knitting expert for ages now, like just a ton of time. And um, so I'm really excited. I've done a ton of research. I can't wait. And so my first question is, how did you become an Icelandic knitting expert? How did that happen? Well, being Icelandic surely helped. But... Um... <laughs> I learned to knit in school, because we all do over here, around the age of eight, I think. Eight? Yeah. And I think, I, I actually, I have some memories. I think before that, I had learned to knit with my mom. She was not a big knitter or anything. It kind of skipped a few generations, but my knitting ancestor was my great-grandma. And actually my great grandfather as well, because they used to sit and knit together. And my grandpa sure. has told me stories of them, like him falling asleep in one room and just to the sound of the clicking of the, of the needles of his parents. My yeah. grandpa was a, a fisherman, but uh, when he, he was home and not fishing, he used to just sit around and knit socks with my grandma. Yeah, I read something. I read something about trading knitting, like bartering with knitting in one of the articles I was reading about you. And it I forgot mm. how many socks for a kilo of grain, but how many socks is it for a kilo of grain? I don't remember the number, but I remember that there were there are these numbers that exist from documentation of of like 18,000 pairs of mittens were traded for this and that sugar and wheat and something. So so this was a really huge part of the Icelandic economy. But for me, it was because you were asking about how to become an Icelandic knitting expert. Yes. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you step have to be Icelandic. Step one, be Icelandic. Step one, be Icelandic. Step two, learn okay. to knit. Although I didn't become this huge knitting nerd at first. I mean, I, I thought it was deadly boring. And I remember excruciating projects in school where we were supposed to do these finger gloves with horrible acrylic yarn and small metallic needles and it was just really uninspiring and, and bad so I knitted when I was when I was pregnant with my first child I was um, yeah. I was 20 and you know it was kind of the law to knit something cute and striped when you had a baby growing inside you so I did that but I didn't really connect with it at that time I think like this mirrors my experience of knitting quite a bit but yeah yeah it's, it's something something like when you're making a baby inside of you, you have the urge to make other things as well. So <laughs> I guess maybe it's a part of that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. When my mom, when I was growing up, my mom was a single parent. One of the only single, well, the only single parent I can remember when I was small. But, uh, you know, she had a business around um, 
selling things to museums and um, gift shops and things like that. And there was uh, some of it was not craft oriented, but some of it was like uh, needlepoint oriented. And so, mm. you know, these kinds of crafts that for me, I, I looked down on because I thought, oh, this is like some Jane Austen style thing where women are supposed to learn. There is something about pregnancy that um, or having a child when you are kind of taken out of the workforce and or or when you're it's like a unique place I think I've been to knitting groups and these knitting groups are really weird I think about them as um barber shops for women you know mm. like a barber shop is a place where you where men go to talk about like men things mm -hmm. and whatever knitting group you go to at least in the U.S. oh no in Britain too you hear a lot of like brutal honesty about life and it's like a place mm. where women can talk about, I don't, I don't think about it anymore as like a quaint thing. I think about it as like a thing where like super women go to gripe. It's like part of it is the actual knitting and part of it is just like, you know, in groups can be really cathartic, you know, especially when you're knitting for someone, which quite often means a baby or a, or a sister or something like that. But yeah, I, I and of course, there's also the, the experience of solo knitting. So yeah, I, I feel you. I feel you. I couldn't have given two figs about crafts earlier yeah, on. Exactly. And then once you have a child, I mean, even like something like braiding hair. I don't know which, which is a thing that moms mm -hmm. now do for their little girls. I don't have a little girl, but there's all these things that you learn when you're younger that I, you kind of abandon and then maybe come back to when you become a mom. Yeah, exactly. It was my second pregnancy where I really, really had a lot of time and it was, I didn't even have a laptop. It was in 2003. So I didn't have a computer at home. I, so I was taken out of work because of my, uh, you know, my body didn't really deal well, well with that pregnancy, but, but then I, I really had a lot of time and I started knitting and somehow I always describe this as the, the matrix moment. Do you remember when Neo saw the the green code and, and he <laughs> saw through it and he understood. It was like that for me. So somehow all of a sudden I could like, Wah! you know, understand how the needles were relating to the yarn and how the yarn was looping together and how everything kind of aligned. It was a moment, yeah. seriously. It must be because you've said that knitting involves a lot of math and um, I will oh, spoiler alert tell yeah. you that I can only knit rectangles and squares because I can't add stitches or remove stitches. I can I can cast on, knit, purl and, you know, finish off a piece. That's it. If you want a square or a tube, I'm your girl. But yeah, I've, I mean, I've seen what you do. So that must involve quite a lot of math. It does. I'm yeah. Thinking. But the thing is that when I started knitting and, and when this understanding came along and everything, I was not able to follow a pattern. I had no understanding of, you know, reading patterns or, or how that worked, that whole thing. So, and I'm, I'm actually, uh, my mind is very kind of creative and I like to improvise and kind of just go with the flow and do stuff like that. But, but when I wanted to start to make patterns myself I really had to restrain myself into that box you know what I mean yeah yeah I do know what you mean it's like that I'm like that with cooking as well I'm incapable of following a recipe yep I have such an improvisational mind that I really have to restrain myself to get into that box so that was a process for me to because to be able to uh, make knitting patterns and understand how they work of course, I have to be able to follow them. 
So I kind of put myself through that. It's a totally different... Our, our knitting pattern, so there is this thing where I think, you know, I've done a sport and that's a thing where you have to learn some basic skills to then kind of move up. You know, cooking is a bit like that. Like, you know, it is useful to know, I don't know, like knife skills before you move on to whatever the second thing is. Like you you can improvise, but there's just a way in which it's 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 good to have skills. I know for people who read knitting patterns, you know, you have to count your rows, you know, you know, you're on row one, row two, row three. And then as you make a pattern, you know, you've got to do kind of specific things in specific rows. You know, if you're making a triangle, you need to be able to, um, whatever, reduce your stitches to be able to Mm -hmm. make it into that shape. And that's how life works. So I don't know. I think what you're describing sounds like a recipe for heartbreak. (laughs) Because if I follow the recipe, if I follow the recipe, right, so there's all these recipes on BBC that are like BBC next level recipes, and they look great in the picture, and I'm sure they'll taste great, but they are just super frustrating for that reason. You absolutely have got to, got to, got to follow the recipe in order. You have to, otherwise you will not end up with next level anything. Right, yeah. And I think, I mean, there is a lot of frustration and tension and stress and, and heartbreak in knitting for sure. Because you're you're talking about the this reading patterns, it, it really is like learning a language. It's, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's like learning a new language, but then also you have to be able to read your material. You have to be able to look at the stitches and understand what the hell did I do in this row right here. You know what I mean? So it's it's also the visual aspect. If you've done it wrong, you also have to be able to undo it. How often have you had to just? tear everything out and start over I don't know that is really one sign of a knitter who is kind of coming along in the craft and becoming more accomplished is is when you really can rip something out without letting it destroy you completely if you know what I mean the knitters that I know call that uh tinking you know because it's knitting backwards yeah knitting tinking yeah right call it frogging sometimes because it's rip like rip 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 you know it is a it is a an important thing of learning, in my opinion, and this is why I always encourage my students to celebrate the mistakes, because if you make a mistake and if you realize you are learning something, right? So the mistake that you make really is a gift. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Look at your face. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I never, and I never have to receive this kind of gift if I only knit squares and rectangles and tubes. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, it, it's, it still sounds like heartbreak, but I do, I do hear what you're saying. And, um, I think it's because I always want my finished product to look exactly like the thing on the picture. You know, there's an aspiration Uh to knitting too, where you get this picture and you're like, oh, I'm going to end up with something that looks exactly like this. You may, you may, I don't know. See, see, this is where my approach is also uh, to encourage encourage people to look at the the instructions and the patterns more like a suggestion rather than the, the absolute truth and the thing to be accomplished, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's also like good knitting hygiene, like, you know, knit a swatch first, you know, knit, oh. knit an, you know, mm. knit your inch, just a square mm-hmm. inch to make sure the number of stitches that you have corresponds to, you know, because you could end up 
you know, you could start out uh, knitting a, a medium-sized jumper and then, you know, just because your tension is different or your whatever is different, True. you know, you, you haven't done your swatch, you end up with a, with a large-sized jumper or something else. Well, so, if you, if you want the garment to fit, it's a good idea at least. But if you don't care about that, you could always, you know, just stick to scarves or, or, or shawls. Then it's less yeah, important. Yeah. Mm. That's it. The magic about knitting in my mind is is that like I'm a pretty seasoned knitter, you know, with, with my yeah. career in it and everything, but I can always be learning a new part of it. There's always something that you can add on. I know people have a heck of a time reading um, patterns that aren't from their country. Have you had to consider that when you design a pattern? Is that something you've had to consider? Um, yes, partially, I think. Um, uh, for example, I mean, you know that knitting is is very widely known craft in Iceland because we all learn it in school. But I guess most Icelandic knitters are pretty basic in their technical knowledge. Okay. You know, they, they know how to knit and purl and uh, cast on and cast off. But... Um, Maybe just one method of casting on and one method of casting off. Yeah, yeah. So I find, for example, in the um, in the American knitting scene, there you have the situation is more that you might make the decision at the age of 25, 30, 40 or something to step into the cult yourself. You know, you're not indoctrinated as a kid, but you yeah. make the conscious decision as an adult to to make this your craft. And I find that those knitters are are often much more technically apt in the in the craft. They know uh, yeah. a few different ways of doing this and that. So there are different levels, but I I write my patterns in in English and in Icelandic, but I I get translators for other languages. You know, because I'm not even though I speak many languages, I'm not fluent fluent in in Spanish knitting language, not at all. And not even in Swedish knitting language, though I'm very fluent in Swedish. So, you know. You you said that your grandparents um, were knitters or great grandparents. Do you have any of their actual items around yeah. like around the house to look at what they've completed? Yeah. Like, what what's that like for you? How is it different? How is it the same? What do you what do you feel when you touch those objects? Yeah. Um, for example, I have this uh, lace scarf made of uh, Icelandic uh, single strand kind of lace weight. It's a scarf that was knitted by my great grandma and given to my mother, who has passed away also. And um, just having that item, there is something really special about it, you know, and, yeah. and also because the family still has the house that my great grandma used to live in and my great grandparents, you know, just being in that environment, kind of being able to hold something tangible that she made is, is really special. Every Christmas I got something knitted from her. She, she did mittens or socks usually for all her grandkids and great grandkids. So, um, you know, she was knitting all year, these piles of socks and mittens. And then they, they came in the, in the little Christmas packets. There is something about receiving something for you or gifting something for someone else. Uh, that is mm. that is a bit magical, but of course that can go wrong. That can go wrong. You know, when, when I was a kid receiving these items from my great-grandma, I don't remember being fond of them because it was something that she made and put love into every stitch and something like that. I love them because yeah. they kept me warm. It was much more utilitarian kind of thought that 
right. from, from my side at least, you know. It was really cold in the winter and you needed woolen mittens and, and it was great to get them. And, you know, so that was then. But now it's different. A few years back, a friend of mine knitted socks for me and gave them to me for Christmas. And I just, you know, I cried. I was so happy. There is a something sock, I think, that. is a really difficult thing to make. It's way more difficult than I think people think it is. Socks are, I think, a tough thing to knit. Yeah, it's funny. I, I have no problem making mittens. I make a lot of mittens, actually. But knitting socks somehow, I, I totally know how to do it. But but somehow I find it very tedious. I don't know why. I think every knitter is like that. I don't know. But yeah, like um, you have said that knitting is meditation. Why? Why oh, do you think yeah. it's meditative? Well, absolutely. So there's a lot of research on meditation and, and what kind of what measures you can take to increase a certain type of, of brain waves that are therapeutical in that sense that you get more like um this is, this is what you get in mindfulness and this is what you get it's this healing aspect of meditation that we know a lot of religions around the world have this meditative component to them and so there's research around that um small repetitive motions where you have to coordinate your hands and your eyes so eye movements yeah. hand movements small repetitive um, increase the ratio of the so-called theta brain waves that okay. are um, associated with with calmness and with uh, creativity and kind of calmness of the mind at the same time. Mm. And knitting is just that. You're repeating small movements. You really have to coordinate left and right. It's not exactly the same. You have yep. to coordinate it with your with your eyes as well. I sure. mean, even though you actually you can, like for um, a, a well-versed knitter knitting something in the round, you don't have to look at it, you know what I mean? I mean... I do, yeah. Kind of. So this makes knitting really effective in calming the mind. Yeah, the way that you're describing it makes me think a little bit of... Um people who have rosaries, right? Catholics who have, who carry a rosary oh, with them all yeah. the time. And you know, you're touching yeah. the beads and you're thinking and you're touching the beads and you're thinking. Yeah. And I suppose you've already mentioned the tactileness of knitting. Like, you know, you said um, these really, I think earlier on, you said this really horrible synthetic, you were talking mm. about horrible knits, mm. you know, the horrible, yeah. like the feeling of synthetic versus a real textile mm -hmm. and um, the feeling of like real wood over um, metal. Because I think that that's also mm, something. Yeah. And I also think because you're talking about this this tactile aspect of it, that you know how today in the world, so much of the things that we do is intangible. You know, we're yeah. working on the computer all day and everything is somewhere up in the cloud. And, and like for me, for example, um, even though I'm a nurse, my nursing really doesn't involve a lot of tactile things. Like, you know, I'm not... A, I'm not dressing wounds or, or touching people or, or things like that because I'm a psychiatric nurse. So I, I talk and then I sit down and I write on the computer what I was talking about mainly. So uh, coming home and, and really doing something tangible is very therapeutic in a way because I think we all have this inherent need of wanting to make something, put something out in the world. It could be baking bread or... Make, making babies, which is maybe not very practical to make babies all the time. So it is nice to be able to make <laughs> something and, and, and then kick you get out of making something and then being able to use it 
or give it away and make someone super happy, you know? So yeah, there's so yeah. many things that, that you can associate with knitting that are kind of allow us to, to be human in a more satisfying way. Does that make sense? It is. Oh man, knitting is, I don't want to say it's high risk. I don't want to say it in that way. I just think about knitting as being for incredibly brave people because there's such a time investment. Um, I don't know, here in the States, yeah. if you buy if you buy a natural fiber and you decide to commit to a pattern, you are probably investing, for an adult, I'm going with two to three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Plus, yeah. however much, however much time you're, you're, you know, how you've committed to doing this thing, which kind of depends how much, if you can do it in the first time, you know what I mean? If you don't have to redo any of the pieces or any rows or any bits of the pattern, then yeah, I mean, you're committing, I don't know what, two, three months. I don't know for an average, for a, for a, for a not novice knitter. Mm-hmm. Sounds about right. Well, it, it all depends on the gauge, like how big are the stitches, how thin is the yarn, how thin yeah, are the needles, okay. etc. For example, if you're if you have a seasoned knitter working on an Icelandic sweater for an adult, that would take um, at least forty hours probably of work to make that sweater, and. The Icelandic wool isn't very expensive over here, so you know that's not a huge part of the cost. But then, if you just calculate what you want to get paid per hour, you know, yeah, it's um, a real effort of love. Which is why I normally don't knit for people. You know, only people I love very much, and I never, I never sell my knits. Yeah, but because you were we were talking about the meditative aspect of knitting, um, I just want to mention that, for example, for me, there are very different types of knitting. Yeah, sometimes I will pick up yarn that uh, that inspires me like um it's the color it's the texture it's the something some combination of colors or whatever and i will decide to knit something and just improvise and just really create and um in those instances i'm i'm usually not thinking about making it into a pattern but just you know having the pleasure of knitting and having a creative outlet other times i will uh knit an Icelandic sweater maybe and uh, with the intention of making a pattern which is totally different then I have to be mindful of what I'm doing I have to write down things I have to you know really remember everything that I did in the garment and then at the end I'm I'm going to have to sit down and do all the math which have is you ever not remembered have you because you're like an expert have you ever knitted something for fun knitted it up and then gone oh how did I do that oh oh all the time <laughs> all yeah, the time okay. yes but then yeah, there's okay. a third type for me, and that's just picking up a pattern by some other designer. Yeah. Something that I find very beautiful or something, and then just following the pattern. And that's yeah. usually very relaxing for me because then somebody else has done all the, the thinking and the, you know, the, the, all the brain work, and, and then I can just enjoy the, the, the benefits of that. Yeah. I should tell listeners that we have a, a document that you can look at. It's in the show notes to look at all of the, the jumpers we'll be talking about, right? Including the Icelandic ones. Um, but if you were just to think about like a, a jumper, a sweater in your, in your brain, when I think about a Nordic or Scandinavian jumper, or maybe a fisherman's jumper, I do remember my mother telling me, look, like um, fisherman's jumpers are no joke. You know, it's not just the pattern. It's got to like keep out wet. Um, it's going to last a lifetime. It's just a different, it's an heirloom thing. 
what do you think of when you think of all of the Nordic, Scandinavian, English traditions? Like, what are some typical things that you think of? Well, um, to mention a few, I find, uh, for example, the Swedish bohus tradition is really, really, really beautiful. Um, can you spell that for me so I can Google it later? Yeah, it's B-O-H-U-S. Okay. And um, they are a little bit similar to the to the Icelandic ones. They have a, a circular yoke pattern, but they are only work with two colors at, at a time. Uh, the yarn is much more fine and more tightly spun. And the, and the color variations in the traditional ones is much more, well, it's more diverse colors than we have in the traditional Icelandic ones. So they're, okay. um, I think they're maybe uh, among my favorites. Uh, then there's the Norwegian ones, like the, the Maris Genser, uh, which is uh, like a very typical Norwegian pattern. And I think- Please spell it so really, we can go Google it. It's M-A-R-I-U-S, Marius. Okay. Uh, Genser, which is a, a sweater in Norwegian, G-E-N-S-E-R, Marius okay. Genser. I think it's really fun how the Norwegians in in modern times are, are kind of playing with that pattern. You can yeah. get all these, uh, you know, the tacky, uh, what do you call the objects that you buy when you're traveling? Souvenirs, like... yes. So tacky souvenirs made a little bit less tacky because it's a it's like a cool pattern and and you know they've taken it into uh, different color schemes and so I quite, I quite like that I don't know what Norwegian people think about it if they have the same feelings about that that we do about the acrylic puffin hats that we absolutely hate <laughs> you know the Viking helmets and all that stuff but um, acrylic puffin so I, hat I, I, that's another thing that's going to get googled yes acrylic puffin hat oh, go ahead. gosh. Okay. Anyways, my absolute favorite Nordic knitting tradition outside of the Icelandic one is the Faroese one. Uh, F-A-R-O-E, Faroe, like yeah, the, Faroe the Faroe Islands. Islands. Yeah. yeah, okay. Those are just beautiful and they have um, these really fun patterns. So in the Faroe Islands, they have these uh, these family traditions with the patterns. So mm. there's like this family on that island has 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 had this pattern for a hundred years or something, you know? So that's really, that's really fun. And I think that's how it was with the cable sweaters and the fisherman sweaters in the, in the British islands as well. You know, you had these specific cable patterns. So, and the lore says that it was to be able to recognize if there was uh, a fisherman lost at sea or something. And you found a, a dead body oh. wearing a sweater and you could recognize the pattern, you know, Oh, so that's, that's at least really what the what touching. the lore says. It's it's dramatic. Um, yeah, it's Iceland, like a cross have... between a it's like a cross between a kilt and a dog tag. Yeah, you know, like yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. That's only softer yeah. and more fun to make, probably. <laughs> Depends but... on who. Yeah, if, if, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. In in certain scenarios, very fun. <laughs> yes, not in the one just described. Yeah, fine. Yeah. But uh, contrary to belief, the Icelandic sweater, I mean, it's only been with us since the 60s of last century. So, I mean, we don't have this strong family um, connection. Sorry, you cut it. out. You didn't say the 60s, the 1960s. Yes. No. Mm -hmm. The Vikings did not come sailing over wearing their yoke sweaters, my dear. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Oh, uh, I'm really crushed now. <laughs> I know. I'm really crushed. 
gosh. So with all of that wool and all of those sheep, when did sheep arrive? Well, sheep arrived probably between the six, yeah, they've been here forever, which is in the Icelandic uh, historical sense between, probably between six, the six and the eight hundred hundreds. Okay. Um, so, um, and they were this, this uh, sheep breed, this uh, North European sheep breed is, is really small compared to many, many other breeds. So okay. I guess they were quite convenient and, you know, bringing over on the, yeah. on the boats. So they have, re- just like the Icelandic language, they have remained isolated here in the island. There's right. been very, very little crossbreeding with other sheep breeds, which is why this uh, particular breed has remained uh, more or less the same since they first came over. Sure. I think they are the oldest, genetically speaking, the oldest sheep breed in the uh, in north of Europe. Okay. And much in the same way, the uh, the people that came over here in the 600s or 800s, they spoke this old Norse language that got sure. isolated up here and has remained pretty much the same ever since. So, which is why mm. we speak this uh, horribly uh, complex old version of a Nordic language. So, but knitting didn't come to Iceland until the uh, the 16th century. So, what were you knitting between the 16th century and uh, the 1960s? Of course, there were sweaters, but they were different. They didn't have this circular yoke. They were much more uh, boxy. Okay. I actually have one that I could show you, but maybe that's not no fun take for Take a picture. Take a picture. We'll stick it. We'll stick it in the. Okay, in the show notes. I'll take a picture. We'll show stick you. it in the show it's notes. A, yeah. It's a sweater. It was my my grandfather's uh, fishing sweater. Actually, not knit yep. by my great grandma, but her friend. Yep. And it was probably knit in the fifties or something like that. Yep. And it's really old. It's really dense and thick, but it's beautiful. So um, they were patterned, and probably the the knitted garments that were the oldest knitted garments that have been found. They don't have any intricate patterns or color work or anything like that they're much more like just you know utilitarian they're they're meant to help people survive you know okay. what i mean yeah i do know what you mean well i mean i probably don't because an icelander it takes a lot to survive i think survival is no Ugh. joke what creates your special wool well it is a bit different the icelandic sheep has two coat two uh, it's a double coated uh type of uh, fleece that they have. Okay. So sorry, so are you saying have... that there's like an, an undercoat and an overcoat? Yes. Okay. There's fine. an undercoat and an overcoat. The undercoat is is finer wool. It's uh, it's very insulating, very warm, and has a, a finer micron. It means that the threads are, are thinner. Uh, and okay. then there's an outer coat. Those are uh, like longer strands, and they're more coarse, and they uh, are water repellent. So this linoleum that that you were talking about, the 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 fatty substance that comes from the sheep's skin, kind of seeps into the uh, the coat and keeps away the water. So yeah. you can, in the olden days, you would separate these two types. Yeah. And there's a special process of of doing that by hand. You kind of you know make this figure eight and kind of draw out the coarser, longer threads and separate okay. the the fine from the coarse. But some time it was probably in the 20th century that people started carding those together. So yep. just taking the whole thing and carding the uh, fine part of the wool and the coarse part of the wool together to make 
this material that kind of held on to the properties of both types. So yep. it's insulating and, and warm and, and light, but at the same time, water repellent, which is kind of cool. So yep. this is how the, the, the wool is made today. It is, um, you have to shear the sheep and then you have to go through a, a whole washing process and all of that. And, uh, and then it's carded together in these huge machines. And then it's kind of drawn out to make, to make threads. So yeah. usually you would call that roving and, but, yeah. but we oftentimes we will just knit from like straight from these wheels of, of roving that are, that come from the factory. Okay. There are also, I can, I can take pictures and send you, there are also types of, uh, of lope. We call this uh, yarn lope or lope in, in your language. Lope. Yeah. I'm there. Yes. Uh, but we never spin the lope tightly. It's just slightly twisted together. Okay. Thus, you kind of keep this uh, lightness compared to the well, the lightness and thickness ratio. So it's a very thick yarn, kind of, but super light at the same time. And that kind of makes the, the, the Icelandic sweaters quite unique garments because they're so warm, they're so light, they're water repellent. Somehow they're self-cleaning. You don't have to wash them, really. You just air them out once in a while. And they just, you know, <laughs> very practical. That is very practical. So talk to me, how did this thing happen in the 60s where, where somebody invented a new iconic jumper style? Yeah, so there's uh, the story goes that uh, there, the inspiration probably, you know how things are kind of, uh, things are kind of lined up in the universe and there's this perfect storm that happens and all of a sudden something new comes into the world. It was probably a case of that. But uh, one one part of the story is this: uh, uh, there was this Norwegian uh, designer who uh, saw a film about uh, this explorer from Norway that went to Greenland and fell in love with a, a local girl who had the traditional Greenland costume on in the film. Hmm. And uh, those costumes, they have these amazing intricate yoke pieces that are made with uh tiny little glass beads that mm -hmm. are woven into these uh, geometric repetitive patterns that go kind of around the yoke okay um very colorful amazing you have to look these up they're just beautiful how are you getting your color that sweater that she designed the norwegian designer she uh, she designed it uh top down which was not at all the icelandic tradition so okay. the icelandic knitters um started making making them with um the bottom-up technique sorry by top was, down you mean you start from the collar and just the for listeners yes. the yoke is the thing that happens around the chest right that's the yes. thing that happens yeah. around the chest so bottom up you mean you start from the the, the, the bottom of the jumper, yeah, yeah like the waist. Mm -hmm. um, and then you knit that way, which is like basically you make a tube and then all the hard stuff happens at the end. Is that right? But well, this yeah, way, you have it's to make, the opposite. You have to make three tubes. You have to make one for the torso and, and then two for identical for the, for the sleeves. And then okay. you use a certain technique to combine these three tubes and knit the yoke that kind of then goes over the shoulders and up to the neckline. And that's okay. where all the interesting thing happens. You do the, the whole pattern and you do the decreases, which I'm sure yeah. you, even you would be able to, to master. <laughs> Let me describe this. So the iconic sweater that we're talking about invented in the, in, in mid-century 
which is also an iconic time for for, for jumpers and sweaters in general, especially uh, of Scandinavian and Nordic origin. So the, the iconic jumper that I'm looking at right now, it is in the show notes. It is jumper A. It is this iconic Lopapesa. Did I say Lopapesa. it right? Lopapesa. Mm-hmm. Lopapesa. It's rather plain, except for the yoke. So that bit around the chest has kind of like a, I don't know whether to call it a shield design or a, or a, yeah, it's it's a design, but the design only happens at the yoke. Okay. Um, if you if you look at a yoke pattern, you can also see that it's really the same few stitches that are repeated all around the body okay. of the person, right? You're telling so, me I only have to learn a few things. Yeah. And then just do them over and over. <laughs> okay. What are the seven things that need to happen to 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 have an authentic Lopapesa at the end of the day. So you have to have uh, Icelandic wool from Icelandic sheep. Yeah. And uh, recent developments over here, um, the, the, the Icelandic Lopapesa has just been patented. Or what, or what do you call it? Where, where you have like a, a national, it's like the mozzarella cheese. Or oh, it's like a, yeah, it's like a, yeah, okay, okay. Like it can't be made like champagne. Or champagne or yeah, okay. whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it has fine. to be from Icelandic sheep raised in Iceland, actually. Okay. So sorry to to the 700 uh, sheep farms in the United States, for example, that have Icelandic sheep. It's not going to do it. Yeah, um, fair enough. It must be new wool, not recycled. It has to be knitted with some wool that is produced over here. So the unspun the Lietlope, uh, the Alofoslope, uh, or, or something that is produced over here yep um there's a, a yoke pattern that is worked in the round you have to hand knit the sweater in iceland you cannot <laughs> and this is what some okay. companies have been doing over here they've been shipping icelandic wool over to countries that have uh less expensive uh labor yeah. and having sweaters knit over there and then ship them over here and selling them as Icelandic products. And that's not good enough. So it must be hand knitted in Iceland. And you have to knit it in the round. You're knitting a tube. You're knitting a tube. And and, and the designs, uh, the, the, the design becomes seamless when you work yeah, it the yeah. right way. Absolutely. But they can be open. They can be, you can make them into a cardigan. But okay. the process of doing that is exactly the same. You knit the, the three tubes or, or, you know, you however you want to do that. And then you uh, steak it at the end, which means that you cut up what you knit with a special technique. Uh, a lot of bravery. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds terrifying. And then you uh, finish it in a in a certain manner to to be able to uh, close it up with a you know you could put a zipper in it or or buttons or, or snaps or something. I don't know what thing I would pick that would that would say Iceland more than this jumper. Oh, eating a sheep's head or something like that. <laughs> okay, that might not catch on. <laughs> I'm looking at the female version, which is, um, you know, image B. So there's, these are both your designs, I should mention, mm-hmm. which can be found on Ravelry, which we will plug later on. Ravelry is a cult site for people who love to knit, just if you've never heard yeah. of it. And you can probably learn how to do stuff on YouTube as well. Like you probably do not need plenty, plenty of people have, have uh, learned to knit with no knitter in the family. So maybe talk to us about the colors and what's permitted in the designs. Yeah. Um, I think maybe maybe that's a part of the reality of the tradition being quite young. 
um, that we are quite open-minded about what is included in the in the yoke design, for example. Um, the, there are stormtrooper lopi sweaters. <laughs> you know, people who put okay. all kinds of stuff into their designs. The ones that you have included of my designs, they they are um, kind of very traditional. I guess they would mirror nature in a way, you know, the mountaintops and, you know, the snow in the mountains and, and the, the things that we have all around. The blues, for example, and the greys are inspired by the the seaside, you know, the ocean and the and the, the, the black sandy beaches and the grey skies. It's always raining. This is a beautiful day. The picture is taken on. I can't believe it, you know. Mm. But <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess... Uh, but we also have purples and pinks and, you know, which okay. are also to be found in nature. I mean, um, yeah. Vietis Jonstotir, who was a hat designer for Eastex for, for the longest time, she, uh, I once, she once said in a lecture that uh, her designs are, are so inspired by nature. And because if, you, if you're wondering what colors go well together, just look around you. Just look what's around you in the nature and you'll find your answer. You know, there's so yeah, many yeah. amazing combinations just, you know, everywhere around you. And I thought that was a really, really good advice for for uh, someone who's picking out uh, colors for the sweater. Yeah, as an outsider, the whole harmony with nature thing seems to be a, an Icelandic um, way of life. Oh, very much. Because, yeah, it's somehow in your face at all times. And you really have to take into account how you're going to survive through it most times of the year you know because the summer yeah. is very short and then we just have winter 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 darkness 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 you're a designer now and you're very successful and we'll get to that but you how do you know when you've succeeded i mean there must be patterns that don't make it right like like you just you you made it you it just it didn't work how do you how do you know when it's successful so you're doing this artisanal thing that's like the you know, I mean, I don't know how the mozzarella cheese, you know, the Parmesan cheese consortium president feels in Italy if he feels like a crushing sense of responsibility or like it's super fun. I don't know. But like, how do you know when your design has succeeded? Uh, I guess when when people appreciate I, uh, so much of this happens online because, you know, I, I publish my patterns on online. I don't publish that much of patterns, but, you know, uh, the patterns that I uh, that I designed for example, my most popular patterns that I designed and published about 10 years or more ago are still selling quite well online. And okay. so I think my most successful patterns are the, the simple classic looking ones that I, so although they are, they have this very classic look to them, they, I might incorporate some design elements that just make the fit a little bit better, make the you know, make the sweater look a little bit more flattering on different types of bodies. And, you know, so so I guess I guess it's all in the sales. I mean, if people buy my patterns and if they want to make sweaters from my patterns, that's the ultimate measure of, of success. Okay. Hey, Eurovision Song Context listeners. For technical reasons, we've had to split this episode into two. Carry on to the next episode to keep listening to my conversation with Rakka. Mm -hmm.